You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, church. Oh, that was a little weak. Come on now. Good morning, church. That's better. That's better. So I've been out the last two weeks. In case you missed it too, you didn't know we were out together. My first week, I got the glad opportunity to speak at the church where I grew up, the church that ordained me, where I really met Jesus and grew up in the faith. It was just really cool to be there. And uh, following that week, I spoke at a week of camp where there were, I don't know, 60, 80, 100, I don't remember how many uh, teenagers there. And it was really cool because that was the camp that formed me as a man. And uh, it was just really cool to go back and be a blessing to those who've been blessing to me. And I highly recommend you get a chance to do that, take it. And uh, so one of the things that came up when I was there is as I preached at this church, you know, it hasn't been my home church for 20 years. Uh, while I was there preaching, I started meeting people I'd never met before. And so they didn't know me, which was good because they didn't know some of the stories from my childhood that some of you have heard. But anyway, uh, and so many of them came up to me afterwards, and apparently the sermon I preached there, I've never preached here, someday I will, but not yet, and um, man, there were people like in tears, which I think is a good thing, I'm not sure, and they were coming up to me afterwards to tell me, uh, man, it was like it went to their Sunday school classes to talk about something, went to lunch or breakfast, came back and were like talking to me about it, and uh, it was just a moving thing. But what came out of all those conversations is people have real legitimate hurts, and people have real legitimate needs. And one particular conversation I had with this one couple, I mean, th- there was just some intense, deep-seated uh, pain from the past, and what that pain had created in one person in particular, was a deep sense of insecurity. So what are you looking for right now? What is it you're most looking for in life? And the reality is all of us are looking for this one thing, a secure place where we can go and know that we are loved, cared for, adored, protected, regardless of how, who we are, regardless of what's going on in our lives. When I went to camp that next week, I met a number of teenagers just coming from difficult, painful backgrounds. There was one particular group that I got to stay up till about 3 a.m. talking to. I don't miss being a youth pastor, just to be clear. But um, <laughs> I stayed up talking to them because they were at the camp as campers when I spoke there last time. I came here three or four years ago. And now they were back as volunteers. So they're all like 19, 20, 21 years old. And so we stayed up late just talking. The conversation kept going long and extended even to the next night. But as they went around the table, I started learning things about the, the pain of their situations. I learned about one particular girl whose parents are in a loveless marriage. They're in the same home, but there's no affection there for each other. And how confusing that's been for her to understand her identity as a female. Some of you know exactly what that feels like. One particular young man, I remember him from a few years ago, um, he never knew his biological father. His dad walked out when he was around one years old, has never reached out or had contact until he graduated from high school. His dad sent him a private message on Facebook. It said something to the effect of, hey, son, I love you, and I'm really proud of you. I asked him what he said back. He said, nothing. I just acted like I never got it. He said, he hasn't talked to me in 17 years. He wants to show up and tell me he loves me and he's proud of me. And the list could go on and on and on. One more guy, Uh, I remember him because he was just out of high school, just graduated this year. He told me the reason he came up in the conversation is there was a bunch of us talking, the conversation was kind of intense, and he just walked up. He was the life of the party kind of kid. I can understand a guy like that. And um, he walked into the conversation and kind of inserted himself, just kind of cut off the conversation and said, well, I got one for you. 
I said, oh, what are you talking about? So he just told me about a situation in his life that he needed help with. I'm thinking, we were kind of in the middle of doing something here, but whatever, grab a seat, sit down. And so we just start talking. He's been listening to the messages and he was moved and had some questions. And, and so anyway, I started asking some questions back to clarify. And as I started asking clarifying questions, I started touching on some painful nerves and he all of a sudden points to somebody else at the table and goes, well, what about him? Ask him something. And I went, wait, what just, you sat down. You told me the story. You forced yourself in the conversation. I said, what just happened? He goes, what do you mean? I said, so you want to be the life of the party when you're getting all the attention, it's fun. But the moment it goes to a vulnerable place, you don't want anything to do with that. You punt to him. And then I thought, uh-oh, I don't know these kids. I might have just overstepped my boundaries. <laughs> and he looked at me. He's like, nah, you're right, man. Turns out he um, had to call CPS on his own family. CPS removed him. He was literally 17 years old, taking care of all his brothers and sisters, but the load was too much. He couldn't handle it. So I realize that's not your story for many of you today. Some of you it will be. So when we hear stories like that, our tendency is to go, praise God, Matt got to go to that camp. But what we miss is this. See, pain is pain. And when you're in the pain club, it doesn't matter what pain you have in your life, pain is pain. And what pain makes us do is ask certain questions. And at some point, they all come back to this one. Am I secure? Am I good? Because if I'm not, then I will seek security. And as the old country song goes, I'll start looking for love in all the wrong places. It's about as good as my country gets right there. I don't go any further than that. I love Jesus. So... Um, <laughs> well, in case those of you who don't know, I, um, my oldest son, we brought home from Taiwan eight years ago, coming up in a few weeks here. It's an amazing, amazing time in our life. But one of the things that's important is as I started reading books and doing studies and watching videos and, and talking to experts, there's one thing that every child, especially orphans, but every child is looking for, and that is security. Is my mom going to be here? Is my dad going to follow through? Are they going to keep with me no matter what I do? And see, the way God built the home and the man and a woman would stay committed till death do us part. Literally, that would be the only thing that could separate us. It's not the world we live in, sadly. And so because of that, a lot of us start looking for security and things that are never built to give us the security that we're turning to them to give us. And so when they fail us, we keep striving after more and bigger and better. And you can insert anything you want into that, but you'll never find it there. But consequently, what happens is it creates insecurity in us. And at some point, that insecurity between us and others, whether it's mom and dad or a friend who stabbed us in the back or a spouse who left us or a boyfriend or girlfriend who hurt us or whatever it might be, that insecurity in those relationships affects the way that we view God, especially the parental one. And because of that broken filter, we start trying to understand, try to figure out, can we actually trust God or is he going to do to us what everybody else has done? to us or what feels like everyone else has done to us. And then we open up a book like Ephesians and we find Paul saying some of the most profound things in the world. And before I read to you just some of these verses, let me just say a few things up front. We're going through the book of Ephesians. It's going to take 90 days. We're breaking it into three different series. You don't care about any of that, but I want you to know we're going slow because I want you to get it. 
One of the things I decided when I was writing this series, we're not gonna get into all the theological doctrinal debates. If you wanna talk about those, maybe I'll shoot some Facebook videos. I'll tell you where I land on subjects and why. But this is gonna be washed in grace. You're allowed to disagree with me, be wrong, and still go to heaven. It'll be okay. <laughs> that is a joke. I'm glad you got it. The texts that I'm going to read today are full of dialogue, sometimes even heated dialogue between Christians. I have friends, maybe even on staff, who disagree with me on some of these things, but I'm not even going there really today, okay? So if you're hungry for that, I'll push you to some books, resources, websites that you can read, and you can land where God leads you, and I'm okay with that. But let's go ahead and take a look now. Ephesians chapter one, we're gonna just read verses three through eight. And I want you to hear what Paul is trying to do by settling your heart in the sovereign, secure love of God. Verse three, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do. And it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and he forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. Now, first, let me just dig into a few major points of what Paul says here and hopefully I can make it relevant for you today. So before the world even began, God made a decision first. And that decision was that all who would receive Christ would be in him. And what does it say? Would be without fault, blameless in what? Did you hear it? His eyes. Not the eyes of your parents. Not the eyes of your ex. Not the eyes of your boss who is relentless over you. Not even your own eyes. And when you look in the mirror and wonder if you really are good enough. I remember a season of my life just being really vulnerable for about 30 seconds and I'll, it's too uncomfortable so I'll stop. Uh, I remember a season of my life where I was stuck in a sin that I kept confessing and repenting, confessing and repenting and I wasn't stopping. I remember saying, oh, dear God, please, please, please just do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. I was so afraid that God would finally come to the brink of his patience with me and he would say, that's it, enough is enough. I'm done with you. So does God ever do that? This week, I had somebody that I uh, dearly care for reach out to me with essentially that very question. This person is in an impossible situation. There is no seeable solution. There are no easy answers. And no matter what they do, it's going to be hard, difficult, and painful. Ever been there? And they had a particularly rough day, and they were going through a rough thing, and they were thinking about doing the most extreme thing possible. We are not talking about murder, so don't worry. So maybe it's the second most extreme thing possible. And they said, if I do this, will God send me to hell? 
to which I hope this person goes online or whatever and hears this message because the unequivocal truth of scripture is simply no. God's not one decision away from kicking you out of his love. I love the the expositor's Bible commentary. It says it this way. Before the foundations of the world were laid, God had determined that all who believed on his son should be saved. That is why the life of Christians depends on a love that never began as well as a love that will never end. I want you to get what that last part means. So if you will just leave that up there for a minute. The reason that love never began is because God has no beginning. He is. He's what we call a Trinitarian God. He has always existed in a loving unity with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's out of that love that God created. It's out of that love that God redeemed his creation when his creation rebelled against him. That's why in those passages I just read you, Paul said it gave him, God the Father, great pleasure to do this for you. Now, how could it bring God pleasure to bless those who rebelled against him? Anybody in here a parent? (laughs) When your children rebel against you, is blessing. What's on your mind? Is it your father? Your father. His ways are not your ways. His thoughts are not your thoughts. Your heavenly father wants to part his blessing. His love never had a beginning. His love will never have an end. So the moment where you enter into that story by faith, you become a part of the love story of God whereby he gives you grace, grace. And grace, I told you a few weeks ago, but some of you are visiting with us today because of some things we had going on recently. And grace is this, God's unmerited favor. God's unmerited favor. And to go quickly through this, favor means this. God is for you. He's not against you. He wants what's best for you. He wants to bless you. He wants to help you. He wants to come alongside you. He wants to care for you. And eventually, he wants to give you eternal life, which begins at the moment you receive his blessing. And it's unmerited, meaning there's literally nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to make him give it to you or give it to you more. He's giving it freely of himself because he's good. One girl uh, last week, I remember our first night that we stayed up till three, um, she was like the one person at the table that really wasn't open and vulnerable. And I woke up the next day just thinking about it, like what what is going on there? What's the story there? And I really felt like God gave me this question, who hurt you? So all day long, I kind of kept waiting to see her and ask her this question. And the next night, we all kind of gathered again. I started talking like part two, I guess. And, and I kind of grabbed her a little way from the table. Everybody else said, I just feel like I'm supposed to ask you this question. Who hurt you? And all of a sudden, it was like the, the flood just opened. And it's not my story to tell, but basically she said, I'm just never good enough. I'm not good enough for my parents. I'm not good enough. And she just started listing people. No matter what I do, I'm never good enough. And I'm guessing, I'm guessing there's some personal shame in there. We didn't get very deep. I'm guessing there's some things she's done that's played into why other people feel like she's not good enough, but it's only confirmed in her own heart, in her own eyes, where she stands. And I looked at her and I said, that's not God's view. For those who are in Christ Jesus, God's view of them 
because they are faultless. It's right there in Ephesians 1. I'm not making this stuff up. It's because when he looks at you, he doesn't see you. When he looks at you, he sees his son. He sees his work on the cross, the finished work of the death, the burial, the resurrection. It doesn't undo the earthly consequences of things you've done. People may still not yet trust you because of what you've done. There might literally still be bills to pay or things to work through, of course. But his unmerited favor is now upon you. And he wants to bless you. Jesus actually unpacks all of this. And as we work through this first part of Ephesians, we're gonna talk about this every week. So you may wanna come with a Bible if you don't own one, download an app. If you don't have one of those, take the Bible in the that's chair or the pew, whatever, if you're up there in front of you or underneath you. Take a Bible. We're gonna be in Ephesians and Luke 15. So go ahead, if you want to, open your Bible to Luke 15. If you know how to, if you don't, no stress. We're gonna put it up here or it'll be in the app. You can download the app. Luke chapter 15. Jesus walks through all of this in what we famously call the story of the prodigal son. Let's take a look real quick at that story as I kind of explain some things to you in there that maybe you didn't know or didn't understand before. Luke chapter 15, we're going to jump in the middle of the chapter in verse 11. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons, which means he didn't sleep because I have three and I understand. That's not in the text. I've made that up. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. Wow. Wow. So the word estate, you may notice if you have a different translation, is often translated inheritance. Quick question, when do you receive an inheritance? When someone dies, which is why he says, I want my portion before you die. The word there is actually in Greek the word bios. Anybody work in the medical field? Bios means life. We get our word life out of this word because what the younger son is actually doing, he's not just saying, hey, dad, give me some money so I can go do what I want when I want. He's saying, dad, I want what will be mine when you die, and I don't care if you die. This is a tremendous slap in the face. Now, this is a private matter. He went to the dad privately, but it's about to become a public matter. Because the only way the dad can honor his request is to take part of the land that the father owns. We're going to find out he owns land because he has servants and give it to the son. Now, anybody ever read the news? And what is going on in the Middle East? What are they always fighting about? Land. Why? Well, there's a whole biblical story I don't have time to go into, but if you go back into Genesis, you will find that God gave the land to Abraham, and it was supposed to be passed down to his sons, but Abraham didn't follow the plan of God. He has a son named Ishmael. So those who come from uh, Islam point to Ishmael and say, he's the promised son. Those who are Jewish and Christian point to Isaac, because that's what the Bible tells us. It says, he's the promised son, but what they're really fighting about is land, physical land. And that land was supposed to be theirs forever. It was never supposed to go out of their possession. So in order for the father to follow through, he would have to sell this very land that everybody's fighting over to give the son the inheritance, or at least hand him the deed. Now, here's the thing. That land is supposed to stay in Jewish hands. The father should have taken his left hand, touched his right shoulder, and threw it forward quickly. (laughs) This is what he should have done. Look what he does. Verse, where are we? Same verse. Verse 12. So the father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. 
All right, I'll go ahead and divvy it up. Verse 13. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money and wild living. Interesting that it took a few days to do this. That had to be one extremely awkward situation at home. Uh, one gentleman that I listened to on a lot of this content, his name is Kenneth Bailey. Sadly, he died last year. Uh, he was a professor. Uh, he actually worked over in the Middle East with Coptic Christians, just kind of cool story. But um, he said he met a Middle Eastern family who had a problem between dad and one of the sons. It took five years for the brothers to get the dad and the son to even have a conversation. And he did something significantly less offensive than this. That gives you a context I think in America sometimes things have changed, evolved so much in our culture, in our relationships. Uh, I hope it's the gospel taking root in our community. However, this son packs it up. I can't imagine what it was like at home that day. And he heads off. We don't know where he heads, but we know that he lives wildly. Now, the word prodigal, we've often called the story the prodigal. It literally just means wild or wasteful or spendworthy. Like he just kind of spent a lot. We don't know what kind of living he did. Later in the story, we learn some things, but just interesting to note this as you're going, we're never told what he did in the foreign land until the brother tells you in judgment what he believes the son did. So we don't know that he actually went out and did the things that the older brother said he did. But he does go out and lives wildly, and then something happens. Take a look. Verse 14. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. A few things to note here. Your heavenly father loves you so much that he refuses to leave you where you are, unless you're right with him. I see this pattern all the time because God loves you so much. You can assume that when you go through hardship and trouble and difficulty, it is God doing something in you to develop your character, your endurance, your perseverance, and your trust in him. But see, if you're far from him, those things are meant to turn you back to him. But you could close your eyes, you could plug your ears, you could harden your heart, you can shut off your mind and say, no, no, I won't receive it. Then you can start to accuse God. Why are you doing this to me? Why do you hate me? And instead it's God going, I put a famine there so that you would come back. Just stop and think about your own life for a minute. Is there a famine in your life? So he's desperate. Notice when the money ran out and things got hard, where are all his friends that he's been living wildly with? They don't have anything to do with him. And he's desperate, so what happens? Verse 15, he persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him to, into his fields to feed the pigs. Well, now we know where he is. He's not local. This is important. If you don't know anything about the Bible, as I kind of described through the, through the Arabs and through the Israelites, it's really bigger than that. There are really two major groups of people. There's kind of a hybrid, but there's two groups of people. There's the Jews and then the Gentiles. If you're Jewish, that means you were born into the family of Abraham. If you're a Gentile, you're outside of that. Those who are Jewish are supposed to worship the one true God. Those who are Gentiles worship the pantheon, pick one, of the many gods of the nations. Now, this is important because we see this throughout the book of Ephesians and a little bit later. But we just learned he's not in Jewish territory. How do we know? Because if you know anything about a kosher diet, the Jewish diet, there's no, um, there's no pork on the pizza, which is tragic in and of itself. <laughs> Although I don't like ham on my pizza, imagine no bacon. Father, thank you for bacon. 
The gospel's a good thing, isn't it? All right, so he goes and he works for the pigs. Now, Jesus tells the story this way because if you go back and read Luke 15, verses one and two, you'll find who he's really talking to are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he tells the story this way because he wants them to understand the desperateness of this man. Not only is he now poor, he has no food. He has literally turned to a foreign nation and he's in such a bad place he's working with pigs. But it gets worse. Verse 16. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. Even the slop. I mean, no offense. One of our elders and, and some families in our church work with hogs. I don't even know if a hog and a pig is the same thing. I don't know anything. I didn't Google it. I love you, <clears throat> but pigs are, are not clean animals. There's a reason why they were not a part of the kosher diet. If you just look this up, so pigs don't really have the same kind of like sweating system that you know, other animals have. In fact, they don't sweat, so they roll in mud. And so what happens is whatever they eat goes into their meat. So whatever they eat, you eat. Have fun with your pizza later. <laughs> and pigs will eat anything, literally anything. And he's so desperate that he's looking at their situation. They say, man, I would give anything to eat that. That's a bad place. Verse 17, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home even the hired servants have enough food to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. Now first of all, when he finally came to his senses, most of the time when I have taught this passage, I'm a completely different place now in this passage, I used to say that he finally came to his senses and this is when he repented and that's not true. Now if you don't know what the word repent means, the word repent means to turn. Literally means to do an about face. If you're an army guy, you understand that language. I was headed this way with my life and I turned and now I'm headed this way. And in the biblical context, it means I had once at one point turned away from God and now I'm turning back to God. And most of us look at this and say, look, he turned back to God. No, 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 he didn't. This phrase right here, when he finally came to his senses, is only used one other time in the New Testament and it's about Peter who was removed from jail and an angel comes to him and says, hey, you need to go preach the gospel. And Peter, it says, came to his senses. The whole idea is not that he repented. The whole idea is it suddenly dawned on him what's really going on. There is a huge difference in your life between recognizing that you have something going on and it's not going well and saying, I know what I'll do. I'll turn to God. It becomes clearer. So he comes up with a plan. Now that he's aware of his situation, what does he say next? Uh, verse, where are we? 17. <clears throat> At home, the hired servants had enough food to spare. Here I am dying of hunger. Verse 18, I know what I'll do. I'll go home to the father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Just please take me on as a hired servant. The very next verse we'll read in a minute tells us that he began the journey. I picture him rehearsing this speech all the way home. I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you. I know what I'll do. I'll look like this, I'll act like this. And then I'll say, look, just make me one of your hired servants. What's going on? Well, I have some friends who um, are from the Middle East, various countries, and they'll tell me when they go home to visit, they don't dare go home empty-handed, and they don't dare go home with a $5 Walmart gift for their family and friends. No, they better go back, and they better go back, you know, go big or go home. They better bring it when they go back, and they are in good standing relationship with family members, but there's an expectation. If you go away, you come back with something. How much more so for the son who took the land that was a spiritual inheritance and sold it to the Gentiles. Oh, you better not just come back with a present. You better come back with the land and interest. 
And he's coming back with tattered clothes covered in pig slop. That's why he knows there is absolutely no way the father will receive him as a son. The only way he's getting home, the only way he's getting cared for, the only way he's getting fed is as a slave in daddy's house. And even then, it's a long shot. Verse 20. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. A few things to note here. It's one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. The word here for compassion is where we get the word splagna or splagnitzomai. I like to tell teenagers, literal translation is the father had a bowel movement. It's kind of gross. Literally what the word means is the father when he saw his son. And how did he see his son? I mean, half of his land or whatever it is is still there somewhere. There's a lot of work to be done. But the father is looking the direction of the son as if he can't wait. Maybe today is the day my son will come home. And when he sees him, something deep inside him literally moves. That's what the word means. It's not just a, oh, no, no, no. Something inside him moves, and he can't keep it together, and he runs as fast as he can to meet his, his son at the gate. Now, no good, respectable Jewish man would run. Running is for little kids. You're way past that phase. Not only that, but Jewish men wouldn't dare show their legs. Picture like a toga. He's got to pull this thing up. Those legs are fully exposed. This is something a mama would do, not a daddy. No, mama can't wait for the son to come home. She's been crying about it every night. But daddies, they're stewing. Right? How dare he shame me like that? But see, this dad's different. This dad is really different. In fact, I'll talk about this more later in our series, so I hope you hear it. This dad almost sounds like a mom and a dad mixed together. You know, like when God says he made them male and female, they were both made in his image. It's as if Jesus is telling the story in such a way that you understand that Father encapsulates men and women, both strength and love. And he runs to his son. Why is he running anyway? Well, there's something in that day called the Kazaza ceremony, the Kazaza ceremony. The Kazaza ceremony, we don't fully understand everything about it, but they would take a clay pot and then they would put inside the pot uh, some corn and some nuts and they would bake it. And we don't understand everything that's going on with the symbolism of the corn and the nuts. But see, in a good community, what would have happened is long before the father could have gotten to the son, the village would have seen the son coming. They would have ran up to the son. They would have thrown the corn and the nuts and the clay pot. They would have baked it in front of him, and he would have known immediately what was about to happen. This is a ceremony intended to visually communicate to him, you are not one of us, and you're not welcome here. And they would literally put it all in there, bake it together, walk up to the son, and say... Sorry about that. You are now cut off. And the son would have been forced to leave. And the father has to beat them to the punch. 
because if the community gets there first, the son will just turn and leave, never knowing if he's welcomed in his father's house. So what happens? Verse 21. So his son's got his rehearsed speech and he says, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Wait a minute. Something's missing. Did, did you hear it? Maybe you were caught up in my explanation. I don't want you to miss it. Look at verse 19 again. Put verse 19 back up there. Here's his original speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. Now fast forward again to verse 21. And his son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. Sounds good so far. Well rehearsed speech, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Okay, where's the part where he says, and now I'll work for you? Don't miss this. This is the key to this part of Luke 15. It's at this moment that the son repents. How do I know? Because the son realizes in the face of extravagant grace that he brings nothing to the table. There's literally nothing I can do I have no resources capable of paying you back for what I cost you, for what you gave me. I got nothing. It's my only response is to receive what you're offering me. Do you see it? His original plan is I'm gonna save myself. How? I'll work for daddy. I'll be better than, than, than I was before. In fact, I'll probably show up and work harder than all those other slaves. I'll be better than everybody that I can be better than. I'll prove to the father, to daddy, that I'm good enough for to be in the house. Only as a slave. He's trying to save himself. And it's not until he throws up his hands and says, I don't have a plan capable of putting back the damage, the hurt, the pain, the shame that I've created. So what am I gonna do? I'm just going to receive. I'm just going to receive. That's all I've got. And now, the father's left hand should be really cocked and ready to go, right? But what's the father do instead? Verse 22. But his father said to the servants, quick, <laughs> bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf. We've been fattening. We gotta celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. Maybe, maybe you don't fully understand because maybe like me, you don't live in that culture. But first of all, meat was rarely eaten in that culture. It's not, no, why, why would anybody want to live in that culture? But meat was rarely eaten in that culture. Like for us, you're going to have it 18 times today alone. 
they would celebrate feasts with meat and the best feast would have a fattened calf that they've been preparing for the next feast. Father says, I don't even care about the next feast. There's no feast greater than this son coming home. Go get that fattened calf ready. And while you're doing that, you grab the robe. Whose robe? The finest robe in the house. Who has the finest robe in the house? The father. You go get that robe and you put it on him. You put sandals on his feet. Why? Because slaves and servants wear sandals. Sons wear shoes. And you put a ring on that finger. Why a ring? Well, in many cultures, in many different times, rings mean different things. This is my wedding ring. When you see it, you know that I'm married to the best woman in the world. This is actually, in the Greek, a signet ring. And if you don't know what that means... It's not familiar to our culture, but in many cultures throughout the world, when there's a king or somebody in authority and they have power, there's a signet ring, and it carries the authority of the one with the power. In essence, what he just said is, we're going to celebrate with the biggest party that we could possibly throw. You're going to put sandals on his feet because no son of mine comes home as a slave. I'm going to put the best that I have on him, and he has all the authority of the king. His entire identity just got flipped upside down from poor beggar to restored son. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Tell me, Does that sound like a father who can't wait to be done with you? Does that sound like a father who if you just do it one more time, that's it, I've had enough? Or does that sound like a father who is unfathomably patient and kind and merciful and loving? I love the way Kenneth Bailey says this. He says, when the village sees the boy wearing his father's festive garment, they will respect the son rather than spitting on him because of the robe that he's wearing. Knowing the depth of acceptance that the father has extended to him, the community will now, for the sake of the father, also accept the boy. And here it is. Let's just make this really real as we wrap up today. We are all Desperately begging the Father to care for us. Some of us try to do it through manipulation like the Son. I know what I'll do. If I do this, then the Father will do that, maybe, if I'm lucky. But when we finally throw down our efforts, when we finally throw down all of our attempts to save ourselves and be good enough and to look good and play the part in everybody else's eyes, when we finally throw all that stuff down, we finally just receive by grace what he has given us through faith. We find that we get all the blessings of heaven poured out on us. Remember Ephesians 1, 3 through 8. All the blessings in the heavenly realms have been poured out in Christ Jesus over us. It's exactly what Paul is trying to say. So how do we respond to a love like that? A love unlike anything we've ever known. Paul says it this way. 
Galatians chapter three, verse 26. For you are all children of God through what? Faith in Christ Jesus. What's the right response to this kind of extravagant love? Faith. I'm gonna trust in him because I can't do it on my own. And until you come to that place, man, you can't be saved. Because as long as you're trying to save yourself, you don't realize your need for a savior. But the moment, the moment it dawns on you, man, I can't do it on my own. I don't have what it takes. I'm not smart enough, athletic enough, good enough looking. I just don't have it anymore. Then he saves you by his grace because he's good and brings him great pleasure to do so. And then what do I do? How do I respond to this? Paul goes on. Look at the next verse, verse 27. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. With those two girls earlier at our service, in case you missed it, came in late, two girls were baptized today. What those girls were doing is they're saying, you know what? These old, stinky, slop-covered clothes that smell like pig stuff and mud the stuff that I have done to accumulate uh, all of my deeds, all of my actions, all of the things that have been done to me and all the things that I have done. Man, Paul describes it like this. When you come to Christ in faith and you go into the waters of baptism, it's like taking off all that dirty, stinky old clothes and you throw it down and you put on the new clothes of Christ. That's the point of baptism. It's what Peter says it this way. It's the pledge of a clean conscience to God. That's why we get baptized. Because we can look at a day and say, that was the day that Christ took it all away and gave me something new. It doesn't mean I was perfect. It meant that on that day, my identity was changed from lost or slave to son and daughter of the great high king. Some of you have never made that beautiful decision. Peter goes on and he says it this way in the book of Acts, chapter two, verse 37, 38. Peter's preaching one of the longest sermons recorded in the Bible, praise God, because this one's long too. Peter's words pierced their hearts and the people said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what do we do? Peter replied, each of you need to repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you're gonna receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, the reason why we respond in baptism, baptism doesn't save us. Don't make a mistake there. You don't get to look back and go, whew, glad I got wet. Now I can do whatever I want. The reason we get baptized is because Jesus died on a cross, went into a tomb, and rose from the dead. And Paul says in Romans 6, we go into that water. It's like we're leaving the old us behind. It's a marker moment that we can look at and say, I left everything behind. I went all in with God. And when you come out of that water, it's like, notice the word like in Galatians there? It's like putting on new clothes. It's like God putting a robe on you and saying, this is my son, my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. And in my eyes, they're faultless. In my eyes, righteous. In my eyes, because he sees his son in you. Don't miss that. When God sees his son in you, that's called the Holy Spirit. And everything that Jesus did completes all the things you failed to do. That's why Paul says back at Ephesians chapter one, verse 14, 
The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. Do you hear that? The reason we do this, the reason we trust God in faith, the reason we respond in faith through baptism is because God's guaranteed, guaranteed eternal life, his favor and blessing over this life. And how do we know? God gave you the Holy Spirit. It's a down payment. It's like when you tell somebody, I'm gonna buy that house. Well, what if you just change your mind at the end? I won't change your mind. Well, how can I know you're not gonna change your mind? Here, I'll give you a down payment. And it's not like, oh, well, I'll give you $1,000 on a $200,000 purchase. No, I'm gonna give you $199,999.99 on the purchase. The last thing left is for me to bring you home. I'm paying for it. I just haven't moved in fully yet. Are you with me? So how do we respond to this kind of love and faith that follows itself in baptism? So I'm gonna ask right now, is anybody in this room ready to do that? If you are, would you just do me a favor and would you just raise your hand right now? If you're ready to respond to Christ, by receiving him in faith. Maybe you've got questions about baptism. Maybe you don't know what all this means. We'd love to sit down and talk to you. Just raise your hand right now. Now what I want to do is pray over you. A special prayer. And I'm going to ask that uh, our communion service would go ahead out, grab communion. We're gonna go right into communion time. And listen, at some point between now and the end of the service, would you just do me a favor if you are ready to receive Christ today? Would you just go to my left at some point? You can do it after the service. You can do it during the service. You can do it during communion. We're gonna sing. You can do it while we're singing. Would you just go to my left, your right, under the screen. We'll have some people there that just wanna tell you more about Jesus. Just go over there and say, I don't even know what I'm supposed to do now, but I'm ready to receive Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for such extravagant love over us. Thank you for being such a good and kind and merciful and patient father. Thank you, God, for sparing us the shame that this world often wants to embarrass us and cut us off and tell us we're not loved or good enough. Thank you, God, that we can trust in the Holy Spirit who's inside us, who is marking eternity in us. God, thank you. We don't have to be anxious or stressed out about whether we're secured in you. We are completely secured by faith in your love. So, God, we rest in that now. And as you meet us in this place, God, I pray for anybody who's ready to receive you, whether they raise their hands or not. God, would you just right now help them to stop fighting Stop trying to save themselves and meet with somebody today to talk about salvation in Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.